Welcome to Designers of Paradise, a podcast focused on people who are changing the ways in which we produce our food, care for our soil and water, and protect our climate. There's a steady flow of information now about the many ways in which agriculture is damaging our planet, disrupting natural ecosystems, polluting our air and water, and destroying the soil it depends on. But there's another set of stories to be told as well. These are the stories of the people dedicating their time and brilliance to reversing the impacts of our industrial food systems. From farmers and consumers to innovators and entrepreneurs, city planners and funders, an entire ecosystem of change makers is on the rise. Together, they're bringing in a next generation of agriculture, which is regenerating soils, food quality, local economies, and significantly, hope. Hope for a better, healthier, and more equitable future for all. These are the designers of paradise. These are people who see paradise as the natural condition of a world in balance, where our collective activity feeds the land and consciously works with nature to rebuild the abundance that supports all life, including our own. I'm your host, Eric Van Lennep. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. Please subscribe for Designers of Paradise at iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's podcast comes from the Netherlands and Vermont in the wonder of Zoom era. I'm speaking today with a good friend, colleague, and um, all together, all around inspirational person. Judith Schwartz, uh, who is both a journalist and a follower of ecological restoration movement. Um, I kind of consider her an activist in in her journalism. She has recently uh, released a new book, The Reindeer Chronicles with Chelsea Green Publishers in Vermont. And um, this basically chronicles uh, somewhere around 10 years or, or you know, a, a year of writing or however you want to say it, Judith, um, of investigation and you know, tapping into some of the movement around the world. So very excited to be speaking with you this, this day, your morning, my afternoon. Welcome. Great. Thanks, to, thanks for inviting me. Uh, my pleasure as always. Um, I've read the book in about three days. Um, it's what, 270 some pages. Um, and I, I have to say, I could not put it down. It was tonic. I, um, you know, in this time when it just seems like our world is, is flying apart at the, at the center, to follow you following these projects and stories was renewing for me. Um, and that's one of the reasons that I'm so excited about being able to dip into this a bit. Um, can you give me an idea how this particular journey started for you? Wow, it's a funny thing because um, as a journalist, or at least in my experience, these journeys don't necessarily have a beginning and an end. I would say by the time that I realized that I was ready to write a book, and knew that I wanted it to to be about earth repair and the possibilities inherent in ecological restoration. By the time that I got there, I realized that I had basically been reporting this book for several years. So some of the stories in the book were ones that I did after I knew I was writing and some of the stories happened beforehand and just informed 
really what I was looking at and looking for. Yeah, so that's, um, I mean, there's an organic process there, isn't it, where something catches our attention and it may be some time before we realize we've actually got a collection of puzzle pieces. Right, for a long time, I've really wanted to find a frame in which to write about landscapes and the healing of landscapes, because I have felt that in a lot of our conversations about our crises, whether climate change, whether water problems, too much water or not enough water, um, you know, flooding and droughts, what has been missing is a real focus on how what we do to the land connects with these. For example, this was one motivation for my writing the prior book, Water in Plain Sight, Hope for a Thirsty World, was that it frankly kind of drove me crazy that when ever in kind of public conversations, in, um, in news articles, whenever we talked about water problems, the focus was always what did or didn't come down from the sky. Whereas having written a book about soil, I knew that the functioning of the water cycle has everything to do with how we treat the land, from how we farm to, how, to whether we, we maintain our forests or cut down, cut them down, and how we cover up or, or not our, um, our soil, our, our ground. So yeah, and the same goes for climate. And, and most specifically for this book, I really wanted to zero in on the understanding that so far, when we talk about climate, we have neglected the role of functioning ecosystems to climate regulation. And that sounds kind of a bit maybe wonky, but basically we can do this, that those, that these landscapes are out there the damaged landscapes and much of our, our global landscapes are, and we can get into more detail about different types of landscapes, but they're waiting to be healed. And when, and, and that, that helps to regulate our climate. And therefore we have so many more opportunities to address the need for climate mitigation and adaptation than we realized. So I wanted to open that up. You know, that's one of the things that really kept me turning the pages um, that couple weekends ago when I read it, uh, was that this conversation that we are having globally um, has been reduced to carbon dioxide emissions and reductions. And one of the things I found so inspiring and, and um, hope filling, hope generating about the stories that you shared is the way in which recovery of soil and soil moisture and rain cycles are connected and what a profound impact they actually have on climate. So what this does for me is two really interesting things and I, and I think useful. Um, one is it enables me to step outside or maybe beyond the debate around CO2 specifically, which is very, very divisive as we know, and 
despite research having gone into it for over 50 years, it still seems to be evading consensus um, to, to a damaging degree. But the other thing is that it puts it directly back into our hands in terms of our ability. As you say, we can do this. This isn't even that stretch that says, well, you need to really look at your lifestyle and reduce all your energy consumption. And of course we do. And of course we waste a lot of energy. And of course there's a lot of energy uh, footprints and, and you know, chains of production, et cetera, that can be changed, dropped, improved, et cetera. That's not saying that's not happening, but that puts it at a remove. Um, so whether it's, it's consuming, um, making choices about energy, which is still coming mostly from somewhere else for most people. There's not that many of us who can put a panel or a windmill um, on an apartment, but we might have, a, have a, a unit in, for instance. I mean, that's a lot of people in the world. Um, but we can all contribute to a garden. We can all uh, take part in that chain of production at a much closer and more immediate kind of level of relationships where we're buying organic, for instance. Um, and for many people, it goes beyond that as, as you detail in, in, in some of these efforts and some of these movements where people are actually choosing to go spend time in critical areas and actually bring back the, the, the landscape, bring back the watershed, bring back the forests. So I think that's, that's incredibly encouraging. It's incredibly encouraging. It, it, it gets me out of looking at things and just saying, look, they're impossible or we're up against political forces that are too huge um, and puts it back into our hands, literally. Absolutely. That's certainly an intent of this book is to invite people in because people want to be part of solutions. And the way that we framed all these policy debates always kind of leaves leaves people feeling kind of disaffected um, and, and, as you say, helpless. Um, yeah, so, you know, and of course what we're talking about, and we'll get into some, let's get into some of the stories, and I'd love to hear what, you know, what resonated most with you is we are talking about energy. We're talking about energy in the most basic sense of the solar energy that, you know, comes from the sun, beams down on our planet, hits our home, you know, like, you know, comes down and brings energy to the ground right outside where we live and the roads we walk on and, and everything else. And the question is, how do we make the most use of that energy? And as the field of permaculture talks about it, that enables us to create abundance. So that's also an important aspect of the book that many people that I interviewed talked about is looking at what we have, our landscapes, et cetera, from a stance of abundance rather than scarcity. And, you know, I think, you know, a lot of this it, it, it involves various forms of regenerative agriculture. And, you know, it just kind of brings home the fact of how our industrial agricultural model comes from a point of view of scarcity that you need us. There won't be enough food unless you, you know, buy from these big corporations that have huge monocultures with lots of chemicals, that kind of thing. Whereas we see how self-sufficient 
within our communities we can be. So, yeah. So, so that's kind of the, the, the frame for this. So which, which of the stories should we leap into? One of the things, well, there, were two, there were two other aspects of the book as a whole, right? That I found um, particularly energizing as a reader. One was that you kept dipping into indigenous knowledge. Um, and it, that's so important. And the other was that you spent time in almost every situation taking a look at the actual culture, the social and, and, and uh, maybe geographic culture that was happening as a context for those particular efforts and how that, con how that culture was engaged rather than you know, some attempt to step beyond it, for instance. So one of the stories that for me really brought that up was the actual Reindeer Chronicles. It was, it was the time you spent in Norway and um, looking at the way in which those elements intersected and also bringing us to, um, you know, to awareness that the kind of ongoing colonial appropriation of natural resources from original peoples is still an issue. Yeah, yeah, that was kind of mind blowing for me. Okay, so yeah, and then um, so so the basic the basic gist of of this of this story, the tension of the story. So I went to, to Norway in 2017. I was invited to speak at a symposium at an art museum, which was kind of cool, um, on about uh, indigenous knowledge. And it was something like, um, I think it was called indigenous knowledge, the practice of sustainability. Anyway, I don't think I have that right. But, um, but so, and the reason it was in Trondheim, which is about a third of the way up north into Norway, which made me see just how, when I looked at the map, just because that felt really far north. And then I realized just how much more of this country and of Scandinavia there was further north than that. It was kind of, you know, really interesting to, to grapple with that. So, um, yeah, so I spoke about the, the global ecology of grazing. And with that, I had done a lot of research on cattle and other ruminants like sheep and goats and how they function on the landscape, but reindeer were new to me. So I did some research and as I had expected, it wasn't what I expected. So here's the thing that there's so much misunderstanding about how animals act upon our landscapes. So, you know, and again, I think that we in this culture, we tend to think of land as kind of static. So we have like, you know, like land and then these animals kind of sitting on it and consuming from it and, you know, putting wastes on it and all the problems that are seen from that, from that lens. However, it all depends on how the animals are, are managed because we do know that many of our landscapes, I know most about grassland ecosystems, which are, represent about a third of the world's land. So those, those lands, those like what we're talking in the, the US, the, the prairie, 
in um, Eurasia, the steppes, the, the savanna in Africa, all these different types of landscapes, they co-evolved with grazing animals. So that's been a really powerful understanding to see not only how landscapes work, but how we can help to heal them by bringing that dynamic back into action in a way that that supports the, the growth of soil and biodiversity and all of that. And, and one huge tool that we have to do that is holistic management, holistic planned grazing. So, um, but my point is that they're often a misunderstanding about animals in the landscape. So in Norway, the government has said that, and claims that reindeer that there are too many reindeer for the fragile tundra landscape. Okay, so I kind of had a sense of that as I started to research this. What I found was how the reindeer are helpful, beneficial to this particular landscape. So I'll give you two examples. Let's take summer grazing. As you know, that these are areas that for long parts of the year are covered in snow and ice. In the summer, when there's not the snow cover, there are lots of shrubs and trees that are cropping up as the, the northern, the, the polar regions are warming at a faster rate than other parts of the world. So the reason that this is significant is that the native heath, is a lighter color. So it reflects heat. It does not absorb the heat. So it, so it, it keeps the land somewhat cool, or at least it, it minimizes the warming. Whereas the shrubs and small trees have a low albedo or reflectivity. So they create warming in the landscape. The thing about the reindeer in summer grazing is that they are managing they are browsing, so they are managing the growth of those, let's say, you know, for shortcut, warming plants. In the wintertime, on snow, the reindeer, which are moved across the land um, in these large herds, many herders moving their animals together, they are pressing down the snowpack. And you think, oh no, that's a bad thing because we want that beautiful, pristine, nice white snow. But actually, the snowpack has an insulating effect. So by pressing down the, the snowpack, they are making it cooler. They are keeping the, the coolness so that slows down or stops the melting of the permafrost. And there's a father and son research team in Russia, the Zimovs, who run a research station called Pleistocene Park in Siberia. And their, their goal is to bring back the mammoth steppe ecosystem. And because we don't have any mammoths around, they're using the kind of the closest analogs, you know, musk ox, they have moose, they have cattle that are, or kind of relatives of cattle that are um, of that native to that landscape. They did an experiment and they found that the, in winter grazing, the areas that were grazed stayed 30 degrees centigrade colder 
than areas that weren't grazed. And that's kind of a lot. So anyway, the point is that the Norwegian government has it wrong and they don't want to hear it. What they want to do is have the herders call their herds. So when I got there um, to the country in 2017, there was a lot of um, kind of a buzz about this particular law case where this then 23-year-old Sami herder challenged the Norwegian government and said, no, I'm not going to call my herd. First of all, a young herder has, has not accumulated a lot of animals. So like if you're taking away a percentage of their animals, then they don't have enough to be to sustain themselves. So he, and also he felt very strongly that by making it impossible for young herders to do this work that people in their culture have been doing for thousands of years, that that's basically stopping the practice. Because if young Sami can't do this, well then who can? You know, then the older generation's just going to die out and the then this culture of herding will be no more. So he won a couple of cases and then the Norwegian government kept appealing and ultimately he lost, which is, but that happened after I was there. But, but no, it is very distressing. And one reason that, that this case became so well known is that the herder, Jovset Antesara, his sister is an internationally known conceptual artist and her work is extraordinary. You know, when you talk about the plight of indigenous people today in the context of a modern government, you know, um, it, you know, just her work just says it right out. She has one piece which is a pile of 200 reindeer skulls with a Norwegian flag on top. And this says so much and it has so many echoes of indigenous cultures throughout history. For example, um, in the US from about the 1850s or so, there are some, there's a series of, of famous pictures of a man standing on a bunch of buffalo skulls showing we can conquer this land. And of course, the loss of the buffalo, you know, they have not been totally gone. They're not, you know, there, there are pockets of bison and, you know, many people who are working to bring that, these animals back into our landscapes. But um, yeah, it was extremely, painful for the many different tribes and peoples who depended on that. Um, and I mean, that's yeah. in the case of the bison, it was intentional. It was genocide. Yeah. You know, I mean, that was the economy of the native people of North America. Many of them, I mean, the majority is because the Buffalo covered pretty much from the great basin, you know, all the way to the Appalachians. Right. Um, so the spiritual, as well, as well. I mean, it was cultural. It was it was food supply. It was it was their economy. Something else about the Sami is that um, I don't remember now because I read this quite some time ago. 
but I believe it might have been Sweden and not Norway, although I would need to double check that. So, so of course, the Sami, the Sami live in a region they call Sapmi, S-A-P-M-I, and that covers the North Arctic, well, the Arctic coast of northern Norway, Sweden, Finland, and even into Russia, uh, an area called the Kola Peninsula. But and because they have to deal with the with the national governments in each area their treatment varies, right? As, as, a, as a friend of mine who uh, was also an author and a poet, uh, uh, Nishinabe, a guy from um, Manitoba in Canada, used to say, hey, we didn't cross the border. The border crossed us. Mm. And so that's what's happened with the Sami. In Sweden, what the government did was they just decided, hey, everybody should be allowed to raise reindeer if they want. And they started giving licenses out to people in further in the central area of Sweden. Um, so outside of the current Arctic range of the herds. But these were just, you know, entrepreneurs and farmers. They had no cultural or ethnic um, relationship with this. It was the, you know, they were raising them like you would raise sheep Ooh. or cows or whatever. And that total of the reindeer herd for the nation was counted without any kind of respect to traditional versus more industrial. And wow. because, of, because of that, the Sami lost out. Yeah, no, it's interesting. And Marit Ansara, who's the, the sister, she is very clear about what she sees in, as an irony that Norway is a relatively benign culture. For example, that there is the Sami parliament, okay? You know, they're the only country, in fact, that was why this conference was in, in Trondheim. It was, a, um, it was to mark the 100th anniversary of a very important meeting uh, between the Norwegians and the Sami people. Um, yeah, so, so she, she's very clear about that, that it could be worse. But it is, it, it is it, I mean, I wouldn't say subtle is the word, but, you know, it's a pretty big, big thing. For um, right now, um, what I mean is that the Sami really are under threat. And a lot of people talk about green capitalism when you can, the, country, the government can put on a, a, a happy um, environmental face while, you know, trashing the lands of the indigenous people. So right now, mining and oil offshore, that's really juicy for the government. Um, some, the Sami land, which in the past had been looked at kind of like a wasteland, like, oh, that's okay, they can, they can go up in the snow, we don't really care about that. But now that they realize how much value there is, and also in hydro, hydroelectric power, Norway is the, the world's leader, I would say, in hydroelectric power, and the power that they generate goes all the way through across Europe. Um, yeah, but that's Sami land that they want to use. And so the Sami people are really, really vigilant right now 
about these efforts. And I think that's really important. And in the book, I discuss a particular, well, a few things that just a lot of the nuances of the, of the herders relationship to both to the animals and to the landscape, their, their keen understanding of, of what the reindeer are experiencing during different conditions. And it's, it's really, it's really quite incredible, just the depths of that. And also, um, I learned about that at the conference, and also there was a Sami um, lawyer, a professor of law named Andi Sombe, who talked about when a predator culture meets a prey culture. And I have to say that was chilling, that talk, and deeply profound, because I saw examples of that in, in lots of places, for example, in Hawaii. Um, just, oh, we'll help you, we'll give you jobs. But in the meantime, undermining just all of the conditions upon which their, their lives, livelihoods, and re relationships to the land and each other were based. It's interesting. I was just like so much is pinging for me as as you're talking about some of these some of these experiences and 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 bits of information that made it into the book, but some also you're bringing up it kind of contextualizing it, but but we're not necessarily finding their way into the book, and that whole that the, the, the movement of people off the land using reindeer supposed overpopulation as an mm -hmm. excuse. Yep. To get at the minerals, right, is yep. something, of course, that we see globally still. Um, and it's always insidious and pernicious. Um, and it reminded me also of something, you know, like I, I, I had to kind of do a quick look while, while we were talking there. In the uh, 1970s, I believe it was, 1987, well, is, there's an Alta Caltocano Dam mm -hmm. in Finnmark, which is actually in Norway. Mm -hmm. um, and it's right, that's the, that's, the, that's the province yes. at, where the Sami live, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And there was, I mean, there was years and years of standoff with Sami and uh, Southern Norwegians coming together and trying to prevent these dams from being built. Yeah. Because they, yeah. Were, dry, they were drowning their, their grazing areas. Yep. And none of them were gonna, were gonna get, you know, a single watt of that energy. It was all for export further south and, and abroad. Yeah, that radicalized a lot of people and people like, um, the non-Sami Norwegian friend that um, toured me around the region, he, he said that how powerful that was. And it was kind of, you know, their, for young Norwegians at the time, it was their environmental wake-up call and led to, you know, people who are still activists today. Yeah, that, that was big. We're going to take a break now. So stay tuned, we'll be right back. Designers of Paradise is made possible in part by Mind and Media. Over the last quarter century, the writers, producers, storytellers, and media specialists at Mind and Media have spearheaded a multitude of engaging and complex communication campaigns. 
Mind and Media is a proud supporter of the work being done by the wonderful and passionate people of Rasa, who are engaged in the creation of a regenerative future for generations to come. Find out more about Mind and Media at mindandmedia.com. That's M-I-N-D-A-N-D-M-E-D-I-A dot com. And now, back to Designers of Paradise and host Eric Van Lennon. Welcome back to Designers of Paradise, where we are speaking today with regenerative soil practitioner and activist, author, and journalist Judith Schwartz about her recent book, The Reindeer Chronicles. So you mentioned this connection over to uh, over to Hawaii, which, you know, again, I mean, when you're in this, the connections are, are evident and still shocking and still disturbing. But if you're not in it, like how many people listening to this um, even understand or, you know, have, have, have heard about the fact that Hawaii is still in a process of land claims by the native Hawaiian people. They're still in a process of trying to hold on to and recover what was destroyed, that there's still an indigenous population there, which is experiencing parallel to what happens to indigenous people in, in other places, particularly when they come up against capitalism. Yeah, and it has a lot to do with their land and their capacity to use the land or to live in relation to the land as they had for, a, I don't know, it's thou, I guess thousands of years. Um, yeah, so, you know, just kind of putting this in context, in this book, I, I wasn't seeking the indigenous piece, but it, it kept coming forward. And I had to acknowledge my own naivete in really not having looked at, at that and really, you know, given much thought to it beyond a certain kind of surface level. But really, I, I was kind of blown away by how much I learned from how these people relate to the land. So in, in Hawaii, this is in Maui, the, yeah, and a lot has to do with, yeah, the, the dividing up of land, well, many aspects of land. So um, the Hawaiian culture had a particular land ethic so that there were like landscapes were kind of divided by watershed. So it would be almost like wedges of land that different groups governed and it, I mean, ecologically, it made a lot of sense because it would it, each little wedge would contain, you know, highland forest and then different kinds of waterways down to the coast. So you had lots of different types of plants, foods, um, habitat there. Um, then when Western people came in and decided to buy it largely for sugar plantations or for ranching. Well, that just like totally, you know, went out, you know, that, that was that. And it was just, you know, what land do I want? But it, it, it interrupted this way of negotiating pe people, negotiating their space on the land and their ability, ability to use the land. And, and in particular for a lot of people there, the waterways. So, Maui, this, the island, it, it's, it's rich in water. I mean, the, the water ecology is exquisite with all the forests and the streams and, 
out and out to the coasts and you know the moisture flowing but when that water became essential to um, the sugar plantations then the people were displaced and this happened gradually over a long time with all those other insidious processes of oh we will give you jobs well in the past they didn't need jobs because they were living on the land in harmony with the land and they had fish and they had their native fruits or i guess I'm trying to remember what they call them um canoe canoe crops these were crops that came over from polynesia um, because hawaii on its own was a very young continent not much was not not continent yeah you know young islands and you know there wasn't all that much food stuff that had been developed so they brought canoe crops over and you know bananas and you know and breadfruit and jackfruit and all these things actually breadfruit and taro might be might be um, native but anyway it made it impossible and th there was a, another a law case there of an um an older man who's been trying to get access to the his own water basically and it's taken years 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 and years finally he now has access to that water um but you know how many decades was he not able to grow the native crops that he had wanted to grow so hawaii was really interesting because i guess it's the same as in norway these tensions are playing out in real time on the island of maui the last sugar plantation closed at the end of 2016. so the question was okay well now what this opens up a whole new space and many activists in hawaii said environmental activists and food sovereignty activists and native activists said okay well this is an opportunity to bring the land back to the people to build food security which is huge because on the on the hawaiian islands or i, I think it's they're all the islands not just maui but they import 90 percent of their food which That's is staggering absolutely staggering the place that sits in our minds is equivalent to paradise yeah and, and you know this is yeah this is a place where things just grow unbelievably fast you know and, and and yeah it's crazy so there bananas are growing all over the island many different types of bananas and yet they're importing bananas from ecuador one type of banana you know the standard cavendish variety because the tourists know those as bananas you know all all this craziness well what happened was in the fall of 2018 all of this got very real because there were two hurricanes um lane and oh my gosh um i'm blanking on it i should know i should know these um because um lane and olivia i i'm, I'm chuckling to myself because the people That's i was i was staying with they named they had two kitten cats that were born around that time and named them after the hurricane so i okay. should know <laughs> i should know those names yeah. um so these hurricanes kind of edged the island but it stopped the barges that that brought all of their goods 
to the island. So these barges, because it because of the real intense weather, um, they were just kind of circling. They weren't able to land, and people were seeing. Oh, the grocery shelves are getting kind of, you know, threadbare. And so the lo local people said, "We don't want to do this. We don't want to be stuck without food um, when we can grow our own." And we will all be healthier and we will be embracing the traditions of the local people and all of this. So, so that, that's, a, that's been a goal. And it's kind of painful, kind of how it's been playing out. Not that the goals aren't still there and there are a lot of really, really wonderful efforts. But it didn't go as planned because a big chunk of that land that was the sugar plantation was bought by a kind of one of these corporations that sort of pulled together, funded by pension funds, in this case, a Canadian pension fund and people with big talk. Although the people, the money people had been behind some land grabs, controversial land water grabs in California in the almond industry, you know, kind of, there was a lot of wink, winking, nodding going on here. And, you know, it's really, it's a company called Mahi Pono. And the first guy who was their farm manager seemed to get it. He said, no, let's, we want more butterflies and insects and biodiversity. We don't want chemicals. He was fascinated by some of the, the different types of agroforestry that are going on there, syntropic agroforestry. Um, I can explain that just, um, yeah, just really ways of making, of, of planting that, that allow for the most rapid return of biodiversity and kind of the quickest path towards ecological succession, meaning that you're, you, you're helping you're helping the land mature to be its most productive with the most kind of high level plants so you have plants that are easier to get a toehold in the landscape that that set the stage for those higher order plants um, and um, i met one indigenous um, hawaiian who calls it polyforestry, kind of a play on the biodiversity aspect, you know, poly as opposed to mono, polyculture as opposed to monoculture, and also play on the Polynesian roots of his people. And yeah, his, his, his work was incredible because you'd see he was working quarter acre by quarter acre. He works at a, at a land restoration project called Hokunui, and he, um, like I said, quarter acre by quarter acre. And you look at this area of, of lush forest and it you know, just looks beautiful and it's producing lots of different crops. And it was only about 15 months old. Um, I'll just say one more thing about him. Um, um, Koa Hewahewa is his name. Koa is a native tree. Um, that he talks about family planting. He talks about how, you know, if you just plant like, you know, one, put one tree in on its own, it's like a teenager with no family 
to, you know, help him or her, you know, like people, we need family, the plants need family. And as it turns out, there are synergies between all these plants. So he starts with certain plants and then they support by drawing down the water, holding it, holding together the soil, bringing up certain nutrients for the specific other, other plants. But anyway, um, the first guy that came in from Mahi Pono, you know, had all these good ideas. And then, you know, you turn around and he's gone and they're planting potatoes there. And then this really got me. 2019, the summer, they had fires in the former sugar lands. They basically left that land, let that land lay fallow. And so the, the grasses, all the stalks dried out. And in Hawaii, I mean, it's unbelievable. I mean, this is, this is a place that there are areas that get 300 inches of rain a year on yeah. those islands, you know? Yeah, well, what, what we learn is that human activity can degrade any landscape. And what we saw in the other side of the island, there's a, a part of the island, now I'm forgetting what it's called, but you know, they talk about it as the dry side of the island. And I think everybody thinks, oh, that's just the way it has always been. But no, that had lots of, lots of forest and it happened to be trees that the Chinese liked for building sandalwood. That's what it was, the sandalwood forests. And those were chopped down. And now that area is as dry, seasonally dry as any place in North, the North of Africa. I mean, you know, it's contained, but yeah, that we can degrade those landscapes but we can also rebuild those landscapes. And that's what's so important. Once we really focus on the function of landscapes, how they work. We, so let's, we, let's um, I'm, I'm watching our clock at the same time as I'm falling into your stories. And there's a, there's a tension there, right? Because I could listen forever. Um, but let's segue, if we can, to some of your um, experience in Spain and particularly the, the bits of the journey and the learnings with uh, Professor Millán Millán from uh, Valencia. Yeah. Because he talked about some really, I think, super important stuff around the relationship to, to um, you know, land changes and land degradation and rain patterns. Yeah, so um, Mian Mian is a brilliant scientist of many stripes. I don't even know how many degrees he has and how many, you know, he's an atmospheric physicist, he's an engineer, he's a climatologist. Um, he's also invented a lot of things, including, actually, um, the things that you, those, when you walk through the metal detectors at the airport, he invented that. So, Anyway, he's a brilliant guy and he's also been around for a while. And so he's seen not only changes in the landscape, but also observed how, how we talk, how the scientific community talks about things. So he's long been an advocate of looking at land climate dynamics and felt that, feels that that has been left out of the picture. And he has many theories as to why. So he has been studying this area of, of land 
what, what's been going on near him. Basically, in around the 1980s, 90s, the, people realized at the scientific institutes that the patterns were changing, that there were several summers where the regular rains weren't occurring. And he started to study why. And he found that there was a direct connection between um, the, basically the loss of trees and vegetation from building over the marshes at the edge of the Mediterranean in, um, in, in Spain, north of Valencia on the coast. So building over the marshes, the cutting down of trees and building over the, just the soil all over the vegetation and the summer rain. So there used to be rains that would come regularly every summer afternoon. And you would talk about how it, the, the day would heat up and then you could watch the clouds move in and then you'd get kind of a nice, he called them a storm, but they sounded kind of pleasant. You know, like then you'd get, you know, a nice rain for like an hour or so, then it would clear, the air would feel fresh, but the farmers had the rain to, for their crops and the air was, was nice and everyone could, could go on. I mean, it was, it was just the way things were. And then those haven't been happening anymore with lots of implications. Um, so, I mean, to, to look at it really simply, what he found is that the, you know, as, as we know, um, you know, like most of our rain comes from plants, the transpiration, the release of moisture from plants. Okay, that's been documented like 90% um, of our rain comes from the cycling of moisture driven by plants. And he research showed, his research showed that the moisture generated from the Mediterranean was not sufficient to create a rainfall. It needed the transpiration from those plants, the plants that no longer were transpiring because the marshes were covered up, the, the, the trees were cut down, the grasses were built over. So yeah, so that's kind of important, but what's inspiring about his work is that he believes that we can reinstate the rain. I mean, he says, you know, by planting, planting and reforesting in one region, it may mean that 75 kilometers away, you get more moisture. You know, it's not like you just plant trees and you have the rain you want. You know, there are all these dynamics of how the moisture moves and interacts with the moisture from the Mediterranean and the, the warmth of the Mediterranean and all these different factors. But I just think that's really, really powerful to see what agency we have rather than ruining the loss, as of course we may do, but not stopping there, but to say, how does nature want to function in this context? How did it work before? And how can we recreate the conditions in which it had functioned previously? So, yeah. in Spain, um, and towards the end of your book, uh, you made, I think, 
possibly the the strongest focus on the I, I mean there was a theme that ran through the book but it, it kind of came together for me and maybe it's because i lived there for a while and, and i had personal communication with some of these uh these projects but um you were looking at the ecosystem restoration camp concept and you uh toured a specific camp and talked to a lot of the campers in southern spain um and had had a look and had um, some very, very interesting um, perspectives to share from those people around the dilemma and the angst that the youngest generations are understandably experiencing as they kind of look forward to a really unknown but seemingly degraded future compared to what the generation before had been able to enjoy. Um, can you talk a little bit about those elements? And, sure. and specifically, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about the way in which being able to have a, a, a focus and a, to build a community of practice around ecological restoration is so um, empowering. Right, right. Um... You know, that's just, that was just such an important goal for me when we look at challenges that we have, you know, certainly in this country during COVID of unemployment. I mean, it, it's, not, it's not for lack of meaningful work to be done. It's that our system doesn't know how to organize around that. So, um, and, you know, as we know in our contemporary culture, um, a lot of people are doing work that they don't find meaningful. So, you know, sitting at a desk, sitting at a computer, it does, I think people long to be connected to like the source of life and, you know, and, and, and you know, to, to nature and to each other and to work together to better everyone's circumstances. So, so yeah, the ecosystem restoration camp movement, I've been watching for a while. And I remember meeting John D. Liu, um, a, a Chinese-American filmmaker who's been, uh, my first chapter is about his work. So his, his work has really inspired me because he very early on saw the potential for restoring ecosystems, namely by documenting the restoration of the Los Plateau in China, in which an area of land the size of Belgium was returned to ecological function. I mean, the scale at which it is possible to do this is just extraordinary. I mean, we can begin on the smallest scale and that can be meaningful in our own lawns or on, you know, our community between, in our communities between the sidewalks and the, and the shops or whatever it is. Um, so he had this idea of let's heal the world. Let's all go camping. He had this notion of, of, individual camps where people can come and partake of these activities of building the soil, growing food in a regenerative way, composting, um, making it possible for the land to hold more moisture and building biodiversity, all of these, all of these aspects of it. And most importantly, he had been for a long time wanting to find a way for people to train each other in these different practices, in different contexts, understanding that 
you know, what you do in Spain may be different from what you're doing in Hawaii, but often there are principles that endure. So he helped to launch this ecosystem restoration camp movement. And so I was watching that from afar and was able to go there. And one thing that is really exciting is that Camp Altiplano, where I went, was the first camp. And when I went in at the end of 2018, there were only two camps. Now there are dozens. There's one in Thailand, there's one in France, there's several in California, including a camp that is devoted to understanding how to rebuild after a fire. It's a disaster response camp. So there's tremendous learning going on. Um, but also, yeah, the word that just came to me was tenderness. You know, there is this, I have this sense of tenderness of these young people who know that, you know, like the people that I happened to meet that day, you know, there are people from all over uh, the world that, that come to these camps to work. And, and the, the ones that, that I was meeting were young people. And the ones I had the most um, engagement with were from the UK you know, they knew they could have a fine life, middle-class life working for some, you know, like I think one woman was working for a district agency to help them build their recycling program. And um, Jonathan, um, that was Rachel, and Jonathan um, was working as a landscaper. And at one point he said to himself, you know, I mean, while I like working with plants, like just helping one wealthy couple you know, have a nice, pretty landscape, you know, that doesn't quite have meaning. So coming to this camp, knowing that they're part of a larger movement and they're gaining the skills and how to restore landscapes and seeing how the landscapes are just, I mean, one beautiful thing about ecological restoration work is that while you can't say that it, you get immediate gratification, but it doesn't take so long to start getting some positive feedback. So it was in November when I was there and to hear them talk about the summer with the, they had built a pond and that collected water and that was extraordinarily helpful. But they talked about the dragonflies, they talked about all of the different creatures that showed up and the, the noise at night and all, because of all the life that was there that hadn't been before they had embarked on their project. You know, just the excitement that they had was just, it was so wonderful. But it is true. Um, yeah, um, did you want me to read that paragraph? I know you had mentioned that there was a paragraph yeah. that spoke yeah, to Yeah, yeah, why don't you, in your voice. Okay, forgive me as I take a, let me just try to get the context. You know, yeah, because I was, I was talking to these people. I really, I was so excited for them. And um, yeah. Okay. Oh, Eric, I think I need a little bit of help from you. Let me see. Um, I, think I, got it, I think I got it open to that page. Here. Yeah, it's definitely on page 213. And it's talking about a kind of the hope and the uh, gotcha. what you felt from the young people. Okay. 
I join, okay, we regroup at the farmhouse kitchen to say goodbye. We've got that sketchy drive back to Vela's Blanco ahead of us, unlikely to get any easier once dusk falls. I join Jonathan at his computer to suggest reading sources and we chat for a few moments. With the ecological and climate crises, people are going through a kind of grief, he says. We've all gone through periods of huge depression for what's going on. He says that Camp Altiplano and efforts like it can provide hope, community, and a sense of meaning that may be absent in other realms, particularly those in which the reality of crisis is denied and that taking action is an antidote to depression. I feel a new kind of grief, not for myself, but for today's youth, those sensitive to nature and who never had the chance to take forests, birds, and insects for granted the way I was able to. This entire cohort and those to follow are deprived of the incalculable solace of predictable seasons. The transition from, say, winter to spring, so defined and familiar you know it in your bones. If I could change that and somehow give them the blithe assurance of nature's permanence that I'd enjoyed at their age, I would do it in a heartbeat. That's absolutely beautiful. I love having it in your voice too. Um, I think that's, we're, we're basically at time. Um, so we'll have to wrap it up here. Um, the, the book, Rain, The Reindeer Chronicles, is out now in the United States. Uh, I'll put a link to the publisher on the, on the page with the podcast. And I understand it's being released in the UK and Europe. Is it either this month or in October? You, I think it's know? in October. Okay, so European listeners, uh, UK listeners, um, have a look for that. I know that Chelsea Green does have partners, distribution partners on this side of the pond, as they say. Yes. Um, and once again, Judith, I really, really appreciate you having the time for this. And I really appreciate you taking the time to write that book. Oh, my goodness. Well, thank you so much. I mean, you know, if it connects with readers, it's more than worth it. Absolutely. It will, I'm sure. Okay, take care. Thank you. And bye for now. Bye. Thank you for listening to Designers of Paradise. I'm your host, Eric Van Lettem. Join me next week as we bring you another eye-opening interview with the people who are revolutionizing the way we produce our food. Indeed, the people on the front lines of Designing Paradise. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. To learn more, go to www.rasa.ag. That's www.rasa.ag. If you have any ideas you'd like to suggest, such as folks we should be talking to or a specific topic we should cover, hit me up with your ideas on Twitter at Greenheart. That's G-R-E-E-N underscore H-E-A-R-T, Greenheart. We'll see you next week.